Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. George Christ. Dr. Christ is a professor at the Wake Forest School of Medicine and is affiliated with the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine. I have to say welcome back to Dr. Christ as he did podcast number 37 back in August of 2007. So it's a pleasure to have you back and certainly be on time for an update in terms of your pioneering studies. Welcome. Thank you, John. Great to be back again, and a lot has happened, obviously, in five years. It's actually been a fairly remarkable five years, and what I'd like to discuss today is the progress we've made specifically with respect to skeletal muscle tissue engineering, and as part of the craniofacial program portion of the Armed Forces Institute for Regenerative Medicine, we've sort of been tasked with coming up with muscle engineering technologies that ultimately can be applied to the complex multi-tissue injuries that wounded warriors suffer in the theaters in in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, of course, those are really, really complicated injuries because they require bone, ligament, tendon, soft tissue, nerve, vessel, all those sorts of things. We're just working on one piece of that right now, which is the muscle tissue engineering part. I think what makes the muscle tissue engineering program that we're involved with is that we're looking, if you will, at the impact of exercise in vitro on how the tissue subsequently perform in vivo. So it's almost like in vitro rehabilitation. And what is it that we can do to prepare muscle-engineered constructs in vitro to be more successful or create larger regenerative responses when placed in vivo? That's sort of been the driving force. So it's been known for decades that if you exercise progenitor cells or muscle-like cells in vitro, you can get them to be more mature, they can form myotubes and myofibers, and they can have certain characteristics. People have not looked at the impact of biomechanical forces, or if you want to call it loosely exercise in vitro, on what happens when tissues perform in vivo, and there's a variety of reasons for that. One is because the amount of tension these in vitro mature tissues form is one at most 10% of what you'd see from a native muscle, and so it's not, it's not going to be really helpful from the perspective of increased function and ability in a person. And so the idea was, well, you're not going to be able to create something in vitro that's real helpful because even if you could get larger pieces of tissue that can contribute more than 1% to 10%, you're still going to need a vessel and you're still going to need a nerve, and you're going to have to implant this entire construct, let's say, in the arm or the leg in order to have a clinically relevant effect. And so we've taken sort of a different approach. We're just trying to see... What are the minimal perturbations? What are the minimal conditions required for observing a functionally and clinically relevant regenerative response in vivo? So we've just started with some basic biomaterials. In this particular case, we're using a porcine-derived extracellular matrix, not that dissimilar from what Steve Badalak and others have used as a matrix-derived approach. It comes from porcine bladder. It's completely decellularized. Obviously, it's cell-friendly. It's got growth factors and other things on it, but we know a lot about it, and there's a dozen or more FDA-approved porcine-derived extracellular matrix material, so it's not something that's unfamiliar with respect to clinical translation. And our approach has been to sort of develop an autologous tissue-engineered muscle repair construct. So I want to emphasize right up front that we're not developing functional skeletal muscle and implanting it. We're developing a construct that we hope can accelerate, facilitate, and modulate the repair process that would occur in vivo, both with respect to forming new tissue as well as with enhanced repair of the native tissue. So how do you exercise tissue that you're growing in the laboratory? 
And there's probably a variety of ways to do this. Uh, our original thought was just based on normal muscle mechanics, a 10% stretch so that you're letting the sarcomere know that it's being challenged, but you're not pulling the fibers apart themselves or the myofibrils apart. Our first protocol was 10% stretch three times a minute for the first five minutes of every hour, just like a real slow curl or overhead press or something like that, just to generate some force. And what we found is that if you do that for five to seven days, you get a nice unidirectional orientation of the myoblasts, and you start to see myotube formation. So you're seeing things which are moving along in a lineage, but you're also getting something that's unidirectionally oriented as far as looking like a muscle-like tissue. So if I can step back for a second, some others are trying to solve this problem as well, but they're doing direct implants of scaffolds, and what you're doing is developing a construct in the lab that you then would implant. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And there's advantages and disadvantages sort of both approach. Obviously, with the scaffold, you don't have to worry about the cells. Our approach is pretty complex because when we sit down and talk to the FDA, we're going to have to talk to them about the cells, we're going to have to talk to them about the scaffold, and we're going to have to talk to them about the bioreactor. And so there's going to be multiple levels of conversations we'll have to have with the FDA. But I think it's kind of undeniable in a sense that having both cells and biomaterials, it corresponds to intuition that if you can create an environment that's more like the environment that occurs during development, that create accelerated timelines, as well as create increased magnitude of an amplitude of response functionally down the road. That's not to diminish anything that's being done with scaffolds because we're collecting lots of useful information and there appears to be a positive and beneficial effect. So I'm not saying you don't try what's right in front of you that works, but when you think about long-term solutions, I think it's clear. If we could generate a whole arm right now by putting in a cocktail or something, everybody would say, well, let's generate a whole arm. We're not there yet, and so there's probably going to be lots of steps along the way. I think trying biologic scaffolds is certainly one of them. I think the kinds of approaches that we're trying, which is maybe one step beyond that in terms of complexity with respect to trying to manipulate the phenotype and characteristics of the cells that we put on that scaffold and put in vivo and see how much of an impact that has under very controlled circumstances to generating further tissue repair. And eventually, you know, you'd like to be able to develop a therapy that causes massive new tissue formation, something that's beyond the capacity or technology of anything that we envision currently. So I'm still interested in these two alternatives in terms of developing some tissue in the lab that you would then implant versus using a scaffold that you implant and let the body regenerate the tissue. And uh, I recognize that there are pros and cons to both, but perhaps you could just enumerate what you think are the principal advantages of A versus B. When we've compared them head-to-head in our models, what we find is that the presence of cells accelerates the regenerative response and increases the maximal amplitude of the response. So for the models that we study, and as we look down the road and the kinds of things we're doing, that's what we see as an advantage. So will biologic scaffolds work? Yes, clearly there's some evidence that they do work. question is, can you accelerate that process, and can you improve the functional outcomes? So if you can decrease the outcomes to one or two months, and I think there's ways we can do that with our technology too. I mean, so as I sit here and try and think of new technologies moving down the road, I'm always trying to think of how can we accelerate the timelines and increase the amplitude of recovery that we see. I think those are the two primary things. So my instincts tell me that if there is an advantage to combining cells with different sorts of biomaterials, whether they're biologic or not, and perhaps the right kinds of drug therapy, things we refer to as regenerative pharmacology, the advantage to doing that is that you're going to accelerate the rate of regeneration and hopefully enhance the amplitude of regeneration. 
So this sounds very promising, but I have the presumption that there's a lot more work to be done before it can be used clinically. We've had some preliminary discussions with the FDA. We've submitted a pre-IND briefing document. We've talked to them, and I think we have a clear idea of what it is they're going to require. I would guess we have two years of work to do before we submit an IND application. Could be longer, depending on how the FDA, once they get the IND, will reevaluate and sometimes their opinion or things that are happening in the surrounding community that they're aware of can change the way things go. So the hope is that we can raise the additional dollars we need to finalize the preclinical piece of this. And our first indication is going to be something that's very, very simple, although not trivial, which would be using our construct for treatment of secondary and revision surgeries for patients that have cleft lip, where there's a small piece of muscle tissue missing. This can serve as a bridge for the missing piece of muscle. And the advantage to this approach is, you know, these are relatively young people. So we're proposing right now patients in the age range of 14 to 19 or 20 or so. They're relatively healthy. They have good regenerative capacity. You can create a fresh wound bid. You can minimize the amount of scar tissue that's there. And you can take a construct that's virtually identical to the size wound we have and implant it directly in the spot. The difference being that Rather than removing 50% of a muscle in an animal model and looking at regeneration removing, you're really replacing a tiny, tiny fraction of a much larger person. (laughs) It's not an animal. So that's going to be sort of our first indication, and we've kind of embedded the financing for that portion of the trial into our AFIRM project, and that would be conducted in collaboration with Mark Wong and Phil Freeman at the University of Texas in Houston. And we're pretty excited about that. Bob Hale and Rodney Chen at Institute for Surgical Research in Brook Army Medical Center, Fort St. Houston, have also been involved in this and I think are equally excited about it. So we're optimistic that in the next couple of years we can generate the data we need. I hope that we can convince the FDA this is going to be a safe thing to try. I have to congratulate you on the progress and commend you for what you're doing. So, Dr. Chris, I also understand that you've done some work in terms of bladder regeneration. Can you share that with us, please? Yeah, sure. And again, here's another case where obviously there's a technology that's already in the clinic that's been used for bladder regeneration in patients that had myelomeningocele and neurogenic bladders. As we look down the road to see how we can increase regenerative technologies to more widespread clinical applications, one of the things that occurs is, you know, what's the natural regenerative process look like? And as it turns out, we recently published a paper in PLAS One on this with some of my collaborators at Wake Forest. The bladder actually has tremendous regenerative capacity, one of the reasons why it's been so successfully used as a model for regenerative medicine thus far. What most people I don't think generally appreciate is that unlike the liver, when you remove two lobes and the third lobe hypertrophies to make up for the volume lost by the other two lobes, primarily to a hyperplasia, when you remove 70 or 80% of the bladder, the structure is restored, at least in a, experimental animals, in this rodent model, a rat. You can restore that volume to exactly the same size and shape, virtually a carbon copy, within eight weeks of removing 70 80% of the bladder. So it's actually phenomenal regenerative response in that you're restoring integrity and function. These animals are continent. They can fill and empty the bladder normally. So it's a complete, basic carbon copy within an eight-week period of the bladder that we removed from those animals. That, I think, provides a unique opportunity with respect to mammalian organ regeneration to really look at how do organs in mammals regenerate and opens up a lot of interesting questions for us. And so we're moving now from the rat to the mouse to take advantage of molecular genetics, and we've recently just had a planning center grant funded by the NIDDK 
to generate preliminary data for a larger proposal to study this where we can use the power of mouse molecular genetics to dissect the blueprint and pathways that are responsible for normal bladder regeneration and use those as a guide or basically a blueprint for how regeneration occurs in mammals, organ regeneration, and then hopefully extract the useful and clinically relevant translatable therapies that might come out of that, not only to bladder but to other types of tissues and organs as they might apply. So I know that your colleagues have done clinical implants of tissue-engineered bladders. How does this differ from that? The strategy there, which has been published and very well recognized, was to take a synthetic polymer scaffold, take a biopsy from the bladder of the patient, and create an autologous implant where you line the urothelial cells on the inside and the smooth muscle cells on the outside, and then you augment the bladder by taking that piece of tissue that you've created in the lab and basically sewing it into the native bladder, and then the tissue integrates with the native bladder, and you get basically an increase in the size of the reservoir. Remember, it is just the reservoir because these are patients that don't have spinal and voluntary control of their bladder, so they've got a small, shrunken, painful bladder. So what you've done in that instance is taken a low-volume, high-pressure bladder, which is very painful, and where they have to catheterize themselves many times a day, and created a larger volume, low-pressure bladder that's not as painful and doesn't need to be catheterized as much. So it's a huge quality of improvement in the lives of those individuals. But it's not a normal functioning bladder. It was referred to as a neobladder or a neoreservoir. What we're talking about here is, and, and lots of people since then have done many, many studies with many different materials and many different stem cells to see, well, what combinations of stem cells and biomaterials can cause more vast or more accelerated or improved regeneration of bladder tissue. What we're saying is, at least it seems to us, the most logical way to go about this is if the bladder regenerates on its own, what's the pathway? What are the mechanisms responsible for that? And if we understand that process, then maybe we can manipulate endogenous regeneration right off the bat because we understand what the program and the blueprint, what the, basically the architecture of the building is. We can take advantage of that. And if we can't get it to do it on its own, then we at least have lots of information for the most intelligent design of scaffolds, biomaterials, and cells and drugs or cytokines that would be used in that process because they'd be very similar to what the normal process would look like. So this is certainly very exciting and uh, I suggest very promising, but I believe this is the first step in a whole series of steps to get this to be something that's clinically relevant. Uh, you're absolutely right. And so this is very, very early preclinical work. And in fact, you know, there's quite a few unknowns here. And we hope that we'll be able to get our arms around this. We've reached out to our local community, and I invite anyone who's interested in this to give me a call. But we're looking at improved imaging, non-invasive imaging methods so that we can track this. We're looking at recruiting stem cell biologists so we can really understand the source of cells and how they populate the bladder because you get this tremendous proliferative response in the bladder, so it's a true regenerative response. You know, we're looking for biomaterials people that can, you know, help if we need to deliver drugs and or cells and using biomaterials as a cell delivery vehicle. So this is really truly a multidisciplinary effort. It's a multidisciplinary within our institute right now. Clearly, the NIDDK and, and us are looking to get the best minds we can bring to bear on this problem. So I think it's an interesting model system for studying, and we'd encourage anyone who's interested in this sort of work to give us a call and reach out to us so we can do this even better than we're trying right now. So, Dr. Christ, I thank you for joining us today. I commend you and your colleagues for the pioneering studies that you have underway and are developing. And we will post on the podcast website a link to Dr. Chris's webpage so that those with more interest can explore his studies in more detail. 
As we conclude this podcast, we remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. And until we meet again with another interesting interview, thank you for listening. Thank you.